This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. This is one of your hosts, John Freeling. Today, I'm joined by a special guest. Justin Boyle is an internal medicine resident at Queen's University, and recently he's also joined us as the manager for the Roundtable podcast. Today, in addition to his work that he's been doing behind the scenes, Justin's actually going to help us out with a uh, rapid fire episode. And I don't know, how are we going to organize this? I mean, I'm talking about a smoking cessation kind of digital app, and he's going to be talking about olive oil. So some kind of preventative medicine, maybe we'll say. Uh, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you for your introduction. I'm happy to be here. Okay, great. So, you know, why don't we just get right into it? Uh, What is the paper that you're going to be telling us about today? For sure. Today, I'll be talking about a paper entitled The Consumption of Olive Oil and Risk of Total and Cause-Specific Mortality Among U.S. Adults. It was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in October of 2021 and was published by Guash Ferre et al. Okay, perfect. So what was the research question here? The research question that they were investigating was really to assess if there was an association between olive oil intake and total and cause-specific mortality. All right, so uh, looking at the importance of olive oil, I, I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here, but why did you think this paper was important? I thought this paper was important because in general, nutritional research is really hard to conduct. And so I think when there's any really large scale study such as this, looking at any dietary component and if we have evidence to support its use in nutritional counseling for our patients, I think it's really cool. And in particular, olive oil is really important in the Mediterranean diet. And we recommend the Mediterranean diet to a lot of people uh, because there are sort of generally purported benefits in sort of cardiovascular health. Um, And looking through it, a lot of of these sort of studies have been conducted in Europe, and this is really one of the first ones conducted in the North American context. So I uh, was really intrigued to see what their results were. Yeah, you know, I think just nutrition in general is so important um, for the job that we do, and we really don't get trained a lot in it. Um, And, you know, all I really know is that, like, yeah, olive oil is an important part of this Mediterranean diet. But why is that? I don't truly understand it. So great. Let's talk about it. So what was the design for the study? The study design was quite interesting to me. It was very Framingham-esque in nature. The research group looked at two ongoing prospective cohort studies. The first was the nursing health study, and the second was the health uh, professional follow-up study. The nursing health study, or NHS for short, was initiated in 1976 and included over 121,000 women aged 30 to 55 years. The health professional follow-up study began in 1986 with approximately 51,000 men aged 40 to 75 years. And all of these individuals were healthcare workers in the United States. And really, this was the inclusion criteria. You really had to be a healthcare worker uh, and you had to be within this age and demographic. Their exclusion criteria were really any participants with a baseline history of cardiovascular disease or cancer, any missing data that they've incurred either at baseline or during follow-up and specifically regarding the consumption of olive oil, uh, and also individuals who reported implausible amounts of food consumption. So anyone who ate very, very little or anyone who reported that they ate a lot in terms of calorie content per day. And really the structure of this cohort study uh, for each of them were really mailing questionnaires biannually. So every two years to assess any lifestyle factors and health status with a follow-up rate exceeding greater than 90% for each two-year cycle that these questionnaires were mailed out. So they had a really good retention of participants in each cohort study. And really, the baseline analysis for each cohort was in 1990, when olive oil consumption was first included as part of the food frequency questionnaire. 
And quickly, a food frequency questionnaire is a validated semi-quantitative tool by which people can assess and quantify the different components of someone's diet. And in particular, they looked at olive oil consumption and sort of salad dressings, if they added it to any cooking or sauteing that they were doing, or if they would consume it in any other ways with food preparation. And they specifically, just to sort of highlight, they split olive oil consumption into four different categories and assigned participants into each of these four categories. So really, if someone consumed less than uh, zero grams of olive oil per day in their diet, they were categorized into one group. Individuals were split into zero to 4.5 grams per day, 4.5 to 7 grams per day, and greater than 7 grams per day of dietary consumption of olive oil. They really tried to look at, as their main outcomes, sort of primary uh, total and cost-specific mortality, and these causes were cardiovascular mortality, cancer-related mortality, mortality from respiratory disease, and mortality from neurodegenerative disease, such as Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And they also had sort of a secondary outcome, quote-unquote, of estimating the risk of total and cost-specific mortality if you were to substitute olive oil with other types of dietary fats, so things like margarine or butter or vegetable oil, which was quite interesting to me. And sort of finally, they used a multivariable Cox proportional hazard regression model to really find hazard ratios and confidence intervals for these total and cost-specific mortality events according to the different olive oil intake categories. So they looked at each of these four different degrees of consumption and looked to see what the hazard ratios were with uh, relation to mortality. And sort of finally, they did sensitivity analyses to really uh, assess if they had a robustness of results and to assess for any confounding variables such as socioeconomic status, family income, home value, and percentage of individuals with a college degree. Okay, very good. So two really big cohort studies. Uh, they had access to data on olive oil consumption. They categorized that, and then they linked that with some mortality outcome. Does that sound about right as a kind of the summary for the study? That is a great summary. <laughs> Okay, perfect. <laughs> I like your detail, though. That's really important to know some of the, the meat of it, too. So, okay, t tell us, what do the patients look like? So, the patients in both the nurse's health study as well as the health professional's follow-up study were quite homogenous in nature. So, by the end of uh, 2018, which is when this data was taken from, they had approximately 60,000 individuals in the nursing health study and approximately 31,000 individuals in the health professional's follow-up study. And really, like I mentioned before, these groups of individuals were split into the amount of olive oil they consumed. Uh, the average age between each group was approximately 56, but around 98% of people were white or Caucasian in nature. And um, I, I think that, again, sort of speaks to the fact that this was quite a homogenous population. Both groups had similar family history of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, and they all had similar baseline dyslipidemia and hypertension profiles, and they all had similar BMIs of approximately 25. Okay, so what did they find? What was the main result? So really they found uh, with respect to total and cost-specific mortality that having a higher olive oil intake and consumption relative to a low consumption uh, improved your mortality and specifically your cardiovascular mortality. So the hazard ratio was approximately 0.81 if you consumed a high degree of olive oil relative to a low degree of olive oil. And moreover, there was a significant inverse association for total mortality and uh, cost-specific mortality if you were to look at every single sort of endpoint they had of cancer-related death, neurodegenerative disease-related death, or respiratory disease-related death. And they also saw that for each five additional gram increase in olive oil consumption that you had, uh, you also had an improvement in your mortality. And just finally, uh, they saw that 
relative to other types of dietary fats that you also saw that same improvement in total and cost-specific mortality. Okay, that's pretty impressive. I mean, that's like a 19% reduction in your likelihood to die just from taking some olive oil at a higher frequency. And what's kind of interesting too is some of these other cause-specific mortality outcomes, like a 29% reduction for like neurodegenerative death, like interesting, cancer, 19%, or no, I think that might have been 17%, but okay, so it seems like pretty big results. What do you think are some of the limitations here though? There are quite a few limitations in both the study design and sort of the composition of individuals within the study. First and foremost, this is an observational study, and so uh, there's always the possibility of having any residual confounding factors that can't be ruled out um, despite adjusting for diet and lifestyle factors. Diets also come in and out of vogue, and so relative to things like margarine, for example, that may have been more popular in the 80s and 90s, I think people just consume less of that today, um, and so maybe that wasn't necessarily captured in the questionnaires that they were asking. Moreover, the study was conducted amongst a predominantly non-Hispanic white population of health professionals, which means that these individuals have great health literacy, they uh, may have been well acquainted with things such as the Mediterranean diet, uh, and so I think that you can't necessarily analyze out a lot of these socioeconomic confounding factors that were present within the study. You've identified the big ones, like, sure, have our gold standard for evidence-based medicine is randomized controlled trial, but like, how on earth are you going to do this with like randomizing people to various levels of olive oil consumption? You're going to have to study these people for decades before you'd ever get these kind of outcomes. So sure, there's probably some limitations here, um, but I suspect it's going to be some of the highest quality data in general that we're going to get access to. Um, okay, what do you think the take-home point is here? I think the take-home point is really that any degree of consumption of olive oil has a potential or possibility of lowering your risk of both total mortality and cardiovascular disease related mortality. Um, and that there's definite signaling to improving your health outcomes overall, regardless of which type of health condition you have, in particular things like Alzheimer's disease or lung disease. Um, so I think that it's still important to counsel patients on consuming a Mediterranean diet. Yeah, okay, so practice changing, are you throwing out all your margarine and replacing it with olive oil or what? Um, I, I think that for me, the study really just underscores the importance of good dietary counseling and access to nutritional food um, as a determinant of health. And I think it really just reminds me sort of in the inpatient setting as well to try to counsel patients on their diet before they leave hospital, um, just to sort of round out the health that we offer them. Okay, that's great. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, you know, I guess we'll move on to the next paper. So this one's going to be uh, kind of a bit of a different take, but around smoking cessation. And it's called the effect of technology-assisted brief abstinence game on long-term smoking cessation in individuals not yet ready to quit. A randomized controlled trial. This was by Houston et al. published in JAMA Internal Medicine, hot off the press, January 2022. Very, very interesting. And what research question were they investigating? So they wanted to know, can a mobile game help engage and motivate people to quit who are actually not yet ready to quit? And why is this important to you? I'm sure you've come to realize this too in part of your medical training, but smoking just seems to be a risk factor for pretty much every disease. Um, what's interesting, and I did not know this, but at any given moment, upwards of 70% of people who smoke are not ready to quit yet. Um, certainly, we know that quitting is hard, but you know if you're not even ready to quit in the first place, that's important to know. Uh, there is evidence, though, to support engaging people in brief non-cessation experiences like you know a practice quit attempt or something called sampling nicotine replacement, which is really just giving them access to nicotine replacement so they can check it out with no expectation that they actually stop smoking, but just as a way of introducing it into their kind of life 
And what that's actually shown is that this sampling can actually lead to a 5% greater six-month cessation rate compared to no intervention at all. So this study looked at whether a brief abstinence game led to higher likelihood of smoking cessation. That's incredibly interesting and very important for people that may not have access to sort of traditional ways of cessation. What was their study design? Uh, so they used patients from four centers in the United States. Uh, patients were randomized to the game and nicotine replacement sampling versus nicotine replacement sampling alone. Patients were followed for six months. They were financially compensated uh, in both the groups, um, but the intervention group also had monetary rewards that we'll talk about. These were adults aged 18 or older who are actively smoking and they were identified on a, an electronic health record, basically. They did exclude pregnant women, prisoners, those with active depression and those who did not speak English. Uh, patients were screened for their readiness to quit. And if they were looking to quit, they weren't included. <laughs> but if they were not yet ready to quit, they were included. So the intervention had a few different components to it. This was a three-week experience based on social cognitive theory and game mechanics concepts. Basically, there were five core components. The first was that there was motivational text messaging sent for three weeks daily basis, um, just with kind of motivational things to help people quit that were evidence-based. After three weeks, the messages were then kind of scaled back a bit to kind of two per week for six months. The second component was a daily self-assessment message and motivational replies, asking things like, how many cigarettes did you smoke in the last 24 hours? As well as questions assessing, you know, smoking craving and urges. Um, some of this was then used to inform goal setting uh, for a participant with a tobacco treatment specialist or a TTS as they were called. So after this first week, the TTS used motivational interviewing to encourage participants to think about quitting. As part of the fourth component, participants were then encouraged to use this mobile app, which provided uh, relaxation or distraction to help manage cravings. Uh, people who didn't have a smartphone were actually provided one, which was kind of nice. And then kind of the fifth component was that during the three-week program, points were received for those uh, that could be accumulated towards a reward, and points were given for participating in quizzes, but they were not given for being abstinent, and that was to reduce kind of over-incentivizing abstinence reporting, which would have created bias, of course. And so you could use these points and you basically got a gift card. So for the most amount of points, you got a $15 gift card. For the middle amount, you got 10, but everyone at least got a $5 gift card. So everyone got some kind of reward. Now for the nicotine replacement sampling, uh, they were given lozenges as well as instructions for kind of like uh, how much to use in a day. And it was optional. You didn't have to use it if you didn't want to. So there were a few different outcomes that they were paying attention to. One was the number of individuals abstinent each day. Another was the number of quit attempts at six months. And then at the six month abstinent mark, um, they paid attention to this both by self-report on questionnaire, but also with a carbon monoxide meter. And I guess um, for carbon monoxide levels that are less than six parts per million, uh, that's considered abstinence. So I did not know that. So that's kind of the study in a nutshell. Very complex and well integrated uh, with technology. Um, what did the basic patients uh, look like? So they started out by identifying 2,900 or so current smokers, but after exclusion criteria, there were 2,600. Now of those 2,600, 2,180 actually declined to participate in the first place. So we lost a huge amount of patients right off the bat or participants right off the bat, uh, but ultimately 433 were randomized. 48% were men. The mean age was 54 and 75% had not uh, completed college. The majority of individuals were Caucasian. 
Within the game, 53% completed 100% of the daily challenge quizzes in week one, 34% completed 100% of the quizzes in the following two weeks, and at three weeks, 90% of all participants completed a follow-up assessment. Um, for those using nicotine replacement sampling, it was about 66% in the game group versus 56% in the comparator group who were using the lozenges. And what were their main results? So what they found was that there was a higher mean number of days abstinent at three weeks. In the tab group, this was 1.2 versus 0.6 days. Um, but other things, so the time to first quit attempt was shorter in, uh, sorry, I keep on saying the tab group, and tab is referring to the game group. So time to first quit attempt was shorter in the tab group. Um, the number of quit attempts at six months was also higher in the game group. Um, they also show that the game group had a higher carbon monoxide level verified cessation rate of 18% versus 10%. And the self-reported quit rates at six months were also higher in the game group at 21% versus 10%. That's incredible. I wonder what the psychology was that sort of underlies those results. What were the limitations that you've encountered with the study? Yeah, it's a good question because I don't really know, you know, like I, I don't pretend to know what things like social cognitive theory entails. So it is interesting to know what the, the meat of the motivational uh, interviewing and messages would have been uh, for what's evidence-based. So that would be interesting to know too, for sure. Um, so limitations wise, I mean, this is a pretty complex intervention with many different layers to it. And so it's a little hard to know like what part of the intervention was the thing that led to the biggest benefit. Another thing was that within the game group, they actually had higher rates of usage of the nicotine replacement sampling. And if we know that that actually helps people to quit, well, like, was that it? Like, was it just the fact that they use the nicotine lozenges more often? But in fact, by design, one of the other um, intentions of the game was to encourage nicotine replacement usage. And so, you know, I guess it almost doesn't really matter because if the game helped people to get into their lifestyle and to, and to using that instead of smoking, that, that's important too. But, you know, we talked about this up front, a lot of people did not take part in the study. And so certainly the people that did, yes, although they are not yet ready to quit, they're very different from those who didn't even want to hear about the study in the first place while actively smoking. So there's a little bit of kind of like a volunteer bias here. Um, and, you know, outcomes were up to six months. And so we don't know what happened beyond this. Uh, what were the longer term smoking cessation rates? I guess in terms of uh, the main take home point of the study, what would that be? Well, I mean, among those people who are not yet ready to quit smoking, this game that involves some motivational strategies seems to help individuals be more successful to quit. That's incredibly, that's very cool. Very, very cool. Uh, would this be practice changing for you? Yeah, I don't know if it is yet. I mean, first, we don't have access to whatever this kind of core game is. And there's a lot of things that I think need to be in place to facilitate it, to make it work. We also talked about the fact that, you know, there was financial incentive, but I mean, hey, if it's like giving someone $15 gift card and that's all it takes to help them to be more successful at quitting smoking, I think that would be worth it from a, a healthcare perspective. But um, I think it's just a really neat study and, a, and a, it is cool. Like it's a cool attempt to integrate technology to help people to quit smoking, especially from a relatively higher risk group when they're not even ready to quit in the first place. So practice changing, maybe not yet, but I think we'll expect to see more of these kinds of techniques uh, to try to find ways to help people quit. Very, very cool. Um, I'm curious to see if they'll end up sort of publishing this app more publicly. Yeah, I know. Can we get access to it for our patients, even like while they're in the hospital? I think it's a reminder too of just that, uh, yes, like you're not trying to 
to harass someone into quitting smoking, but it's never the wrong thing to ask someone where they're at in their willingness or in their thoughts around quitting. Because even I think just planting that seed is important to, to engage patients and, and also being able to offer them resources that we know help like nicotine replacement, etc. That is the episode. Justin, thanks a lot for joining us. You know, before we go though, there is the one last bit that we like to do, which we call the good stuff. And it's about anything or anything medicine or non-medicine related that just kind of caught your eye. Um, so do you have anything for the good stuff for us this week? I do. First and foremost, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I saw on CBC earlier this week that uh, there is a community centre in London uh, that is hosting a library that aims to sort of highlight the contributions of Black authors. And it has over 600 uh, books and articles uh, made by Black content creators and authors. And I think that's really cool in sort of creating a safe space uh, for readers from many different communities. Very cool. I've not heard of that initiative. We'll have a link to, uh, to it on our website so we can check that out. Thanks for bringing that up. What about you? Any good stuff to share today? Uh, so for me, it's going to be, if you got some time to watch TV, uh, I watched a great documentary on Netflix and credit to a colleague, Mike Lamb, who recommended this to me, but it's called The 14 Peaks. Um, it's about this Nepalese mountaineer who sets out to climb the 14 8,000 meter mountains in a record time. So the person who did it before took seven years and he's going to do it in seven months. So it's an incredible watch, beautiful cinematography. Um, the mountaineer himself is just an incredible person. So if you got time, check it out. That's a lot of hiking. <laughs> yeah, it is. I, I can't even imagine doing like one tenth of the first hike. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much for being on the show, Justin. You have a good rest of the day and we look forward to having you back uh, for another episode as well as for your help with uh, serving as a podcast manager. Thanks again. Thank you. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.